giving our choir a hearty amen. amen. We thank God for them. It takes practice and energy and dedication. And we are grateful to our musicians. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we have come to worship. And we know that you are here by your spirit feel your spirit's presence, we sense his stately steppings among us, and we pray that as we open the Bible to study, 
for the next little while that he will speak to us through us and that we might leave better educated and motivated and empowered to do your will in Jesus name Amen Back to the scripture Hebrews chapter 11 and again we welcome our listening audience some of you have made it a habit of tuning in every Saturday afternoon at 4 and we hope that you will take the next step and come out and worship with us wherever you are we, we welcome your participation and our the scripture today read already Hebrews 11 1 to 4 starts us out on what I hope will be a very profitable journey in our message of the hour which and this is no surprise to the members of Abundant Life will be the first of a series the first of a brief series of sermons on this topic verse 4 Hebrews 11 by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was what everybody righteous, righteous. God testifying who's testifying God. God testifying of his what yes. of his gifts and through it he being dead yet speaks the new King James the old King James being dead yet speaketh my subject for today and the next few times we're together and that will be several Sabbaths in a row here she not he but she being dead yet speaketh she being dead yet speaketh recently that is last November so I guess it's not so recent but last November while several of us were on an Operation Reachback visit in Kenya, we were at a bookstore in some little town outside Nairobi. Can't remember the name of the place. But I saw a volume there that attracted my attention. And the title of the book is Six Men Who Rule the World from Their Grave. Mm. Mm. And I said, well, what kind of topic is that? Six men who rule the world from their grave. I was very, very curious. So I picked up the book. Sorry, I didn't buy it. I wish now I had. But I was counting my pennies carefully. But I picked up the book and I looked at it and I flipped through it. And I said, aha, aha, I see. Because they had chapters, six chapters. And they dealt with names like Darwin and Karl Marx and Benjamin Franklin and three others who, who because of their theories, the things they wrote and said when they were teaching and they were leading in society in some way and because of their inventions, because of the inventions, these six people, according to this author, and I had to agree, 
were still, even though they're long since dead, dead and gone, because they had changed the flow of history, because they had moved the yardsticks significantly, these six men were still, by their inventions and by their theories, they were still significantly influencing the direction of humanity. And I said to myself, how true. And the same can be said, can it not, of the great men and women, great men and women of the Bible. In fact, right here, the word says that Abel, righteous Abel, the first human being to die, slain by his brother Cain, though he be dead, scripture says, yet he speaketh. He is speaking by the contributions that he has made by the sacrifice, by his gifts. Well, the same could be said of Moses because he influences, he influenced Judaism and the whole Jewish faith is based on the systems of Moses, he being dead yet speaketh. The same can be said of David and his soothing, encouraging book of Psalms, he being dead yet speaketh. And Solomon with his wisdom of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And Paul with his letters, even though they were not written to Las Vegas or Los Angeles or New York or Louisiana or Chicago, they were letters written to the churches of the cities of his day and by those letters that we read that influence our lives, he being dead yet speaketh. And what can be said of these and all the other prophets can be said of the modern day prophet, Ellen G. White. She is not an equal with these Bible writers. She is not a part of the Bible. She is not to be considered a Bible author but she is uniquely inspired and was indeed a prophet. She was divinely equipped. She was, as she called herself, the lesser light pointing to the greater light. The lesser light being the books she wrote pointing to the greater light, which is the Bible, the Word of God. No, she is not a part of the greater light. She's not in the biblical canon. But she was and is a light and a bright and shining light, a light that we should not ignore, and she has left us a lot of wonderful books. And by them she being dead yet speaketh. Some of these books resulted from visions 
and dreams that God gave her. Some resulted from articles and sermons that were later collected and letters that she wrote to institutions and families and individuals. And all of these she put together and by them she being dead yet speaketh. And I'm going to demonstrate. Now most of you probably have seen these books so what I'd like to do uh, Elder Sanford probably is just to turn these around let them stand up and while the folk can't read all these titles let's put them so they can be visible and at least they can get an idea of what we're trying to say. By them she being dead yet speaketh. So what I did was grab a bunch of books from my own library at home and from the library here at the church just to give you an example, those of you who haven't seen many of her books. And by the way, this afternoon at 5 o'clock from 5 to 6, we're going to start a seminar that will get a little deeper into all of this, her visions and dreams and identity and what she said. But for now, simply let me point out that some of her books, and these are by no means all, some of them were written by her intentionally, like this one, Patriarchs and Prophets, which is the history of the patriarchs and prophets, the old patriarchs and prophets, starting way back with Adam and going all the way up to the death of Samuel and uh, Saul and David. And then we have other books that go along, Prophets and Kings, which takes up from that point and moves on to the time of Christ and the desire of ages, which is the life of Jesus, and the acts of the apostles, which is the story of the early church, and the great controversy that we just studied for several weeks, for about eight weeks, from five to six every Sabbath afternoon. These books were books she sat down and wrote. She just, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, she wrote them. Now, there are other books that she wrote or had collected where she went through all of her writings and said, all right, what is it that I would like to say about the Christian home, for instance? Or what would I like to say about preachers and the gospel ministry? So she would write this book, Gospel Workers, and collect articles in various places and make a book. She didn't write that book as a book, but they were collected and made into a volume. And there is another type of book, and that type is a type which was put together since her death. For instance, here's a book titled The Truth About Angels that bears her name. Well, she didn't write this book. What they did after she died was to go all through her various articles and sermons to see what she said about angels and she put it all together in one book. Really, really, really thrilling and very, very informative. And here's another one she didn't write, Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery and Divorce. I ought to give one of these out to everybody around town. <laughs> I order, order, order about 500 of these and stand on Doolittle and Jay and just pass them out. But 
See, you thought I meant the church. I'm not talking about the church. But here, here is a beautiful book where she gathered all these, somebody, she, not she, but her estate. There's a group of men and women in D.C. at headquarters and Silver Spring, and they are the uh, curators of her writings, and they pull together books from time to time from various sources, and that's another way. So there are, I would guess, uh, at least 70, 75 such books that bear her name. And oh yes, before I move on, let me mention this one, which is of this series. There are nine of them. These are called Testimonies to the Church. I happen to have here uh, one of the volumes, volume four. And this is a collection put together while she was alive of her different letters. People would write and say, Sister White, I have a problem. Kind of like uh, Dr. Joyce, is that her name? And Dr. Phil and all those people. Pe people would write her and they would want to know different problems and she would answer them and talk to them and she would write letters and articles. So these are nine, there are nine of these books that bear her name. And I'll leave them here if anybody wants to look through, you may. And knowing you're good commandment keepers, I know nobody's going to. Uh, yeah. So. All, all of this is a part of how she being what? How she being what? Yet what? Yet speaketh. And she is that prophet who has been raised up by God and through the means that I have described, given to the church, the information and the inspiration that we are provided. But now, if we say that she still speaketh, or she's still speaking, the question that some people might ask is, yes, she's speaking, but what is she saying? What is she saying? So let's talk about that for a while. The prophet still speaketh, what saith she? First of all, she is saying that the word of God is true. The word of God is what, everybody? The word of God is true. Remember, remember, she said, I am the lesser light that leads to the greater light. And one of her objectives in ministry was to point us to that greater light, which is the Word of God. And in fact, it occurred to me as I was thinking about this morning's message, that the very presence, the very fact of her ministry is proof that the Word of God is true. Now how is that, you might ask? Well, let's read over here in the book of Revelation chapter 12 and let me explain. Revelation chapter 12 verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. They do two things. The devil is angry with the woman, and in the Bible, the woman represents the what? So, prophecy says, the devil would be angry with the church. 
the remnant church. And the word remnant means the last. The Bible is saying the devil would be angry with the church in the end times, the last part of salvation history. And whoever this church is, this remnant church with which the devil would be angry, and for the devil to be angry at it, it must be a good church, right? If it were Babylon or a confused church, would the devil be angry? So the devil is angry with the people of God who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Look at the book of Revelation this time, chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the of or otherwise interpreted the gift of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit or gift of prophecy. And, of course, that gift has been promised to the remnant church. The church that is serving in the last days. So if we're going to look for the remnant church, if we're going to look for God's true believers, then we've got to look for a church that both keeps the commandments, that emphasizes the Ten Commandments, and there are not many of them. Not many that really emphasize the Ten Commandments, and even those that do emphasize the Ten Commandments, they put a big hole right in the middle. And that hole is around number four. And the book of James says, if you keep all ten and yet omit one, you're guilty of how many? You're guilty of all. So, the fact of the matter is that this true church, this church for which we are looking, must be a church that does two things. Must keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. They must have the gift of prophecy in their midst. So, if we're going to say we're God's true people, we've got to have both. And thank God we do because Right there in the middle of the 1800s, right on time, at the end of the dark ages, ages, the Bible prophesied it, the Bible said it would be, and we've gone through this in other sermons, but you remember that the Word of God promises in Revelation 12, 14, and in Revelation 13, 5, and on, and as well as Daniel 7, 25, that there would arise a power that would conduct what is known to be the dark ages. There would arise a power that would keep the world and the church in subjugation for 1,260 years. That would be a period from 538 to 1798 and history records that for 1260 years pagan and then papal Rome ruled the world but the Bible also says that at the end of that time at the very end of that time this great 
power would have a deadly wound and that this deadly wound would release the world to study the word of God again. And history records that the Protestant church sprang up after the Reformation and that when the Pope was taken captive in 1798 by the French General Berthier, when the Pope was taken captive and the papal power suffered its deadly wound and the Bibles that had been translated into English by Wycliffe and others, by Luther into German and so forth, secretly and under great duress, when the Bible now could be read in churches and no longer did the Vatican control the world and the Protestant church exploded in revolution, all kind of churches began to appear and they appeared in other places, but especially in the United States. And the reason that the United States was such popular soil for the springing up of churches, for the bursting forth of different denominations, is that the United States was that beast that came up out of dry ground, Revelation 13, 11. The United States, the beast with civil and political horns of liberty was a fresh territory and these other denominations, the Puritans, could come over and they could begin to worship as they wanted to and so they fled here from Europe and good and honest people now no longer under the yoke of papalism began to preach and teach and churches began to spring up, all kinds of churches in this virgin territory called the United States and around the year 1800 and in fact from 1800 to 1900 100 years of history the United States gave birth to 250 to 300 denominations now there were some churches already here before the deadly wound in 1798 the Presbyterians the Quakers the Anglicans the Episcopalians and the Shakers now that's an interesting church, Brother Milford, the Shakers. They're all interesting, but the Shakers are particularly interested because they didn't believe in sex. And they all died out. The, the last Shaker went to rest many years ago. They, this was the denomination didn't believe in having babies, Brother Lewis. Didn't believe in having babies. And they called them the Shakers because they, they would dance when they were preaching and singing. They, they did a lot of dancing. And, and, and so folk called them the Shakers. But they, I found them in studies this week and prior to be a very interesting sex. They were destined for annihilation because they didn't believe in reproduction. But the rest of them are still here. And from 1800 to 1900, scores of churches popped up. The Lutherans in 1820 became established here. The Mormons in 1830. The Church of God in 1848. The Apostolic Christian Church in 1850. Salvation Army in 1865. The Christian Scientists in 1866. Jehovah's Witnesses in 1884. Church of God in Christ, 1897. Church of Christ, 1898. And right in the middle of it all, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yeah. 
right in the middle. Now, of course, it didn't become the Seventh-day Adventist Church without some trauma. You see, around 1840, you had people who called themselves Adventists, and they believed in the second coming, but they didn't know anything about the Sabbath. And then you had some people who called themselves Sabbatarians, and they were heavy on the Sabbath, but didn't know anything about the second coming. So they were just two other groups that had sprung up after the deadly wound in 1798. But one day in the early 1800s, 1843, a woman named Rachel Oakes, who was a Seventh-day Baptist, and we still have some of them around, Seventh-day Baptist met with Brother Fitch, who was a Sabbatarian, and they became acquainted, or who was an Adventist, and they became acquainted. And Rachel Oak said to the Adventists who didn't know anything about the Sabbath, do you people, you call yourselves Adventists, but do you know anything about the Sabbath? And he said, what are you talking about, the Sabbath? And she said, well, you know, the seventh day is the Sabbath. Yeah. And he said, well, you got me. I don't know anything about that. She said, well, you better study and read. And so the Sabbatarians and the Adventists began to talk. And, and the more they talked, the more they saw that they had agreement because the Adventists believed in the judgment. And they said, if there's a judgment, there's got to be a law. And the only good law for judgment is the Ten Commandments. And right in the middle of the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath. So it does make sense. And the Sabbatarians said, well, we're keeping the Sabbath. And the Bible says it's a Sabbath when he made it, and he came and he kept it, and he rested on the Sabbath, and the disciples kept it after he left. And Isaiah 66 says, from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to work. So maybe we better pay attention. And the two got together, and they yoked up, and the church was born right after the 1844 bitter experience of disappointment, and they called themselves Seventh-day Adventists. Well, all that's fine and good, but you see, when God said he was going to establish the church that kept the commandments, he also said that he was going to give it the spirit or the gift of prophecy. So they had now the church, but they didn't have the gift of prophecy until a little girl, age 17, in the year 1844, heard Mr. Miller, William Miller, who was one of the early preachers of the Advent, later he accepted the Sabbath in 1848. She heard this Mr. Miller preaching about the Advent and the second coming. And she left the Methodist church and became an Adventist. And when the Adventists and the Sabbatarians got together, she was a part of that original union that made up the Seventh-day Adventist church. And when her first visions were given in the 1843-1844 era, when she had her first direct communications from God, her physical phenomena 
the things that happened to her in her dreams and visions were such that she was immediately recognized as being influenced by supernatural powers that, that were clearly directing her to say something to the church about the way they should run things and about how they should love the word of God and that is how she became the lesser light that gives information on the brighter. And just to make sure we have a little history as we begin our journey today, she being dead yet speaketh, let me read with you. Ellen Gould Harrison, or it should be Harmon, was born November 28, 1827 in Gorham, Maine. She and her twin sister Elizabeth were the last of their parents' eight children. Ellen was, a convert, was converted at a Methodist camp meeting in 1840 and was called to be the Lord's messenger after the Adventist disappointment in 1844. Let me stop there. These Adventists these Adventists, before they fully accepted the Sabbath, these Adventists had interpreted Daniel 8, Daniel 8, 14 and other scriptures to mean that Jesus was coming in 1844. And they got all ready to meet Jesus. Some of them sold their homes. And, and those true believers just got everything, they, they, they shared all their jobs and responsibilities, sold their farms, and they waited for Jesus to come. They didn't realize that what Daniel 8, 14 was talking about was his leaving the most holy place or his leaving the holy place going into the most holy place to begin the investigative judgment. He did do something in 1844, and that was he began the pre-Advent judgment, but it wasn't coming. His coming is yet. But they were confused and disappointed. And it was after that that she was given her first vision in December. The disappointment was in October. And God put her there just in time, just when the discouragement was worse. Just when things were dark and people were laughing at them and the Adventists were, were, were being made fun of, just as the transition was made, God brought her in. Now look at the next slide and notice. She was married to James, and that should be Ellen G. Harmon, was married to James White on August 30, 1845 and became the mother of how many children? Four. All boys. She became a Sabbath keeper in the fall of 1845, soon after her marriage, and served as the Lord's messenger until her death. And when was her death? July 16, 1915. And in 1846, when there were only about 50 known Sabbath-keeping Adventists in the world. How many? 50. You know how many there are now? 20 million, approximately. 20 million, 4 million in Africa alone, and over a million in the United States. But then 1846, only about 50 Sabbath-keeping Adventists we know about. Others may have been doing it privately. The Lord gave Mrs. White a vision from which I quote these lines. Next uh, slide. I believe we have a couple more. She says, let's all read it together. Can we read it together? I was shown that the third angel proclaiming the commandments of God 
and the faith of Jesus represents the people who receive this message and raise the warning to the world to keep the commandments of God as the apple of the eye and that in response to this warning, many would embrace the Sabbath of the Lord. And I ask you to, today, if there were 50 then and 20 million now, has that prophecy come true? And not only has it come true, but her writings have been a, a critical part in making it happen. Well, the rest of that I have more, but we'll, we'll go through this this afternoon at 5 o'clock. I must hurry. Thank you. Now, the point is, God brought this gift to the church. And it's interesting to note, brothers and sisters, it's interesting to note that the gift of prophecy, which we are here talking about today, the gift of prophecy is not for the world, it's for the church. And you can take this off, brethren, because I don't want them reading that now. We'll read that this afternoon. <laughs> the gift of prophecy is for the church. The gift of prophecy is for who? The church. Now, it is a fact that God gives all these gifts. And you've read about the gifts. And I, I think it might be well if we turn to the book of Ephesians, where we see some of these gifts uh, that are listed. But the gifts are for the world, most of them, but this gift is particularly for the church. Notice that we read here in Ephesians 4, verse 7, but to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this is Ephesians 4, now I'm going to read verse 10. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And, verse 11, he himself gave some to be what? Prophets. And some what? Prophets. And some what? Evangelists. And some what? Pastors. And some what else? Teachers. And verse 12, for the equipping of the who? Faith. And for the work of the? Ministry. For the edifying of the? Body of Christ. All right, now turn with me to the book of Corinthians. To the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I want you to read verse 22. And I want to nail this down because this is, this is critical. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Therefore tongues are for a sign not to them who what? But to who? Now I, I don't want to knock anybody's church, anybody's religion. I'm not here to, to beat up on anybody. But let me point you to the Bible. The Bible says the gift of tongues is not for those who believe. But to unbelievers. And in fact, most of the gifts are to work for unbelievers. If I'm an evangelist, should I be trying to evangelize you who are already in the church? Huh? My gift should be to do what? Go out there and evangelize in the public. Most of the gifts that God has given are for public, outside the boundary. Now the church benefits, but they are primarily targeted there. But look at the rest of it. But prophesying, and now we're talking about all the prophets, including Ellen White, who is the lesser light. She's the lesser light. Prophesying is not for who? Wait a minute. 
You got another Bible. Prophesying is not for? Oh, then your Bible reads like mine. Prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who? So the prophets were sent to the church. Ellen White was not sent to be uh, the leading voice in some tent meeting or some evangelistic campaign. Prophets are for the church. They are for the inside work. And God raises them up in time to, be, to do a special work, such as Moses, who led the people from Egypt, and Ezra and Nehemiah, who were prophets not to the Babylonians, but to lead God's people out of Babylon. And John the Baptist, who was the prophet who led in the transition amongst the Israelites that helped to identify the Lamb of God. And the same is true of Ellen White. She was raised up at a special time, at a crucial time, as we pointed out, in the middle of the, of the 19th century, in the 1840s, just when the church needed her, just when the Adventists and the Sabbatarians were coming together, just after the disappointment, in the midst of all that was going on, God raised her up to do three things with the church. Number one, she was to proclaim to the church the doctrines of the Word of God. Number two, she was to protest in the church. When she saw things going wrong, she told the brethren what they should do. You might say she told them off. And if you read these books, you see a whole lot of times when she gets the brethren told in a nice Christian way. Here's one book, Testimonies to Ministers. If you want to know how Pastor Lee Wars and Pastor O'Bannon ought to act, this is the book you ought to read. Right there. Everything they ought to be doing. It's right there. All right? And it was her whole thing. She was given to the church to tell us how to act. And she was given mighty manifestations and was clearly able to fulfill both the physical and the spiritual signs of a true prophet. And we don't have time to go through that here, but be here at 5 o'clock and I'm going to take you through the physical and the spiritual tests and some other interesting things that we'll talk about. But now, back to the essential question. If she being dead yet speaketh, what does she say? First thing we've identified, she says, the Bible is the word of God. Ellen White holds up the Bible. Now I know you can look online and you can find books and suggest the day somebody handed me a letter from some fellow, I happen to know him at Oakwood, who's preaching against Ellen White. And, and, and that goes on. But don't let anybody fool you. Ellen White never thought herself to be some great person. She never put herself on par with the Bible. She does not have any doctrine. You cannot find any doctrine in Ellen White. You only find Ellen White upholding the doctrine in the Bible. She never inaugurated, she never started anything. God put her there in order to help 
the brethren, to help the brothers and sisters, the church to get started. And she is a modern day prophet for a modern day people. And what does she say? What do you find? Well, if you read those books, she has a lot to say. She talks about courtship and marriage and child rearing and church organization and sin in the church. And let me read you this one. I just came across this that I thought I would read. You know, some, some of the things she says are really shocking. You know what she says? And this, this condemns me too. We are just as accountable this is Testimonies, Volume 4, that very volume I picked up, page 516. We are just as accountable for evils that we might have checked in others by reproof, by warning, by exercise of parental and pastoral authority as if we were guilty of the acts themselves. You understand what she's saying? If people are doing wrong, and we don't go and try to help them and talk with them and pray for them and correct them, we are just as guilty as if we did it ourselves. And there's the others like that, just a sample. But she talks about the church and how the church ought to be run. What preachers are supposed to do, what members are supposed to do, how we relate to each other as brothers and sisters. She talks about holidays. Folks say to me sometimes, well, do we observe Easter and, and Christmas and, and Halloween? It's all there in her books. She, she deals with it, race relations, women's rights, child abuse, elderly care, hospitals, schools, voting, tithing, eating, drinking, drugs dressing the time of trouble and what I'm going to preach on next Sabbath how to keep the Sabbath I think sometimes we forget we need to preach on that once in a while all very practical and very helpful and by them she being dead yet speaketh and I rise today in defense of the prophet I rise today to establish in the minds of all of you recently baptized and all of you old timers who have grown weak and who don't read and study the word of God and the spirit of prophecy as you should, I rise to tell you we need to get back to basics. God says believe in his prophets so shall ye prosper. And we ought to be spending more time reading the Bible and the spirit of prophecy than looking at BET. And if we did, we'd have more faith. We'd have more faith. Our children would have more consecration in our homes. And we'd have more power in the pulpit and more power in the church. By them, she being dead, yet speaketh. And let me summarize by saying, I think that if I wanted to wrap it up as to what she is saying in these books and how they come across, I have the four C's of hope. The four C's of hope. First of all, there are the Ten Commandments. These are the four C's. The first is the commandments, the Ten Commandments, which she gives to us as our hope of living. Ellen White, over and over again, magnifies the Ten Commandments. And she says in early writings, page 58, for instance, 
They ought to be meditated upon continually. Brothers and sisters, the Ten Commandments are an expression of God's personality and character. And the more we study the commandments, the more we know of God, not only the, the, the commandment in his bold written statement, but the commandment at his, as it is thought, as Jesus explained it, whoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already. As he said it, if you hate somebody in your heart, you committed murder already. We need to study the commandments of God and they are our hope for living. Next, she talks about the cross and the cross as our hope for salvation. Just let me give you a few paragraphs. The cross, volume six of that testimony of volume I showed you, page 636. The cross must occupy the central place because it is the means of man's atonement and because of the influence it exerts in every part of the divine government. Lift him up. Lift him up. The man of Calvary. Higher and still higher. There is power in the exaltation of the cross. And that's letter 65, 905, and on and on. Ellen White was big on the cross. The cross was always before her and she held up the cross and so must we. Number three, she gave us the hope of his covering as our means of salvation. And by his covering, I mean the righteousness of Christ. I don't know any author anywhere I've ever read who pushes Christ's robe like Ellen White. Listen to what she says. Our church's gospel work is page 301. And that's this little book here that's all torn up. Well, no, not that one. This one here. A rather new copy I have. Our churches are dying for the want of teaching on the subject of the righteousness of Christ. Page 301, evangelism, page 191, the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the human agent. This is the message God commanded to be given to the world. Review and Herald, August 31, 1905, Christ and his righteousness. Let this be our platform. What is our platform? Christ and his righteousness. The fact that you and I can never be saved. Yes, she exalts the commandments, but not as a means of salvation. You and I can't get to heaven by keeping the commandments. Because no matter what good we do, it comes out of this unholy flesh. So even our good, Isaiah says, is as filthy. And we need Christ's righteousness, the holiness that he earned on earth. We must be covered with his perfection in order to be accepted by the Father. And finally, she exalts not just the commandments and the cross and the covering, but she also exalts his coming, the coming of Jesus Christ in the clouds. It is all through her writings, laced everywhere, is the fact. In fact, she looked forward to his coming. She talked about his coming. She said he's coming soon, just like the Apostle Paul said he's coming soon, and all the other prophets looked forward to it. She wanted to see his coming. She expected to see his coming. 
But finally, in 1915, she laid down this veil, this outer garment, and she died. And now since then, almost, this is 19, 2009, and she died in 1915. We're almost 100 years beyond her death, and still he hasn't come. But she, like the other prophets, made it clear that we are prisoners of hope, that we must live in the bright expectation of his coming, and that even if we die, as Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica in 1 Timothy 5.10, whether we wake or sleep, we must be ready when he comes if we have to come up from the ground, which is where she will no doubt emanate. It will be soon because once you close your eyes and then you wake up, his coming is immediate. Amen. And I've told you before, but I'll tell you one more time, maybe never again. When I had my colonoscopy at Loma Linda a few years ago, I went in the room and the nurse said, where's your wife? I said, oh, she's out there reading a magazine. She said, reading a magazine? You better get her in here. I said, well, why? To myself, but I obeyed, got on the call, the, the phone, asked her to come in. And they put me in the bed, and they put up some railings. And I said, why are you people putting me in railings? I've had colonoscopies before, never had that kind. And I didn't know what they were about to do. But I began to get the idea these folk were serious. They were about to put me under. Yeah. Now I saw a man come in with a big bag and hanging upon a rack above my head. And then the doctor said, sir, are you ready? And I said, oh yes, I'm ready. And that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> I don't remember another thing. Until my wife is shaking the bed and said, get up, hurry up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And you know, the time between are you ready and the shaking of the bed didn't exist. So when I woke up, it was soon. It wasn't just soon, it was immediate. And the time between are you ready and the bed shaking didn't exist. And that's the way it is for Ellen White. That's the way it is for David and Paul and Samuel and the others. When they wake up, it will be the next instant from when they close their eyes in death. So any way you cut it, he's coming soon. And you and I must be getting ready. If he comes while we're still living, hallelujah, let's be ready. But if we have to lie down in the dust like so many of our friends are and our relatives, then let it be that when we wake up, the voice that wakes us up will be the voice of Jesus. When he says, wake up, my child. Ye that sleep in the dust, come forth. And that was Ellen White's preachment all through her writings. And I'm going to read you this as I conclude. And we get ready for this evening. And I hope you'll be here to help learn more if you want to learn more and study a little deeper. But this is what she wrote. On my way to Battle Creek in 1868, I dreamed of being with a large body of people. A portion of this assembly started out prepared to journey. We had heavily loaded wagons as we journeyed. The road seemed to ascend 
On one side of this road was a deep precipice and on the other was a high, smooth, white wall. Like a hard finish on plastered rooms. As we journeyed on, the road grew narrower and steeper. In some places it seemed so narrow that we concluded that we could no longer travel with the loaded wagons. They didn't have Porsches and, and BMWs back then. They had wagons. Then we loosed from the horses and took a portion of the luggage from the wagons and placed it upon the horses and journeyed on horseback. As we progressed, the path still continued to grow narrow. And we were obliged to press against the wall to save ourselves from falling off the narrow road down the deep precipice. As we did this, the luggage on the horses pressed against the wall and caused us to sway toward the precipice. We feared that we should fall and be dashed in pieces on the rocks. Then we cut the luggage loose from the horses and it fell over the precipice. We continued on horseback, greatly fearing as we came to the narrow places in the road that we should lose our balance and fall. At such time, a hand seemed to take the bridle and guide us over the perilous way. As the path grew more narrow, we decided we could no longer go with safety on horseback and we left the horses and went on foot in single file, one following in the footsteps of another. At this point, the small cords, at this point, small cords were let down from the top of the pure white wall. This we eagerly grasped to aid us in keeping our balance upon the path. As we traveled, the cord moved along with us. The path finally became so narrow that we concluded we could travel no more with our shoes. So we slipped them off from our feet and went some distance without them. Soon it was decided we could travel more safely without our stockings. These were removed and we journeyed with bare feet. We then thought of those who had not been accustomed to privations and hardships. Where were they now? They were not in the company. At every change, some left behind. And those only remained who had accustomed themselves to endure hardships. The privations of the way only made these more eager to press to the end. Our danger of falling from the pathway increased. We pressed close to the white wall, yet could not place our feet fully on the path, for it was too narrow. We then suspended nearly our whole weight upon the cords, claiming, we have hold from above. We have hold from above. The same words were uttered by all the company in the narrow way as we heard the sounds of mirth and revelry that seemed to come up from the abyss below. We shuddered. We heard the profane oath, the vulgar jest, the low vile songs. We heard the war song, the dance song. We heard instrumental music and loud laughter mingled with cursing and the cries of anguish and bitter wailing and were more anxious than ever to keep upon the narrow, difficult pathway. Much of the time we were compelled to suspend our whole weight upon the cords which increased in size as we progressed. And I noticed a beautiful white wall that the, that the beautiful white wall was stained with blood. 
It caused a feeling of regret to see the wall thus stained. This feeling, however, lasted but for a moment, as I soon thought that it was all that it should be. Those who will follow me after will know that others have passed the narrow, difficult way before them and will conclude that if others were before them, they will be able to continue. And as the blood shall be pressed from their aching feet, they will not faint with discouragement, but seeing the blood upon the wall, they will know that others have endured the same pain. At length, we came to a large chasm at which our path ended. There was nothing now to guide the feet, nothing upon which to rest them. Our whole reliance was on the cords, which had increased in size until they were as large as our bodies here. We were for a time thrown into perplexity and distress. We inquired in fearful whispers, to what is the cord attached? My husband was just before me. Large drops of sweat were falling from his brow. The veins in his neck and temples were increased double the usual size and suppressed agonizing groans came from his lips. The sweat was dropping from my face. I felt such anguish as I had never felt before. A fearful struggle was before us. Should we fail here? All the difficulties of our journey had been experienced for naught. Before us, on the other side of the chasm, was a beautiful field of green grass about six inches high. I could not see the sun, but bright beams of light resembling fine gold and silver were resting upon this field. Nothing I had seen upon earth could compare in beauty with this field, but we could succeed in reaching it, could we? Was the anxious inquiry, should the cord break? We must perish. Again in whispered anguish, the words were heard, what holds the cord? And for a moment we hesitated to venture. Then we exclaimed, our only hope is to trust wholly to the cord. It has been our dependence all the difficult way. It will not fail us. Shall we continue not hesitating or distress? And the words were then spoken, God holds the cord. We need not fear. And these words were repeated behind us. God holds the cord. We need not fear. He will not fail us. He has brought us thus far in safety. My husband then swung himself over the fearful abyss into the beautiful field beyond. I immediately followed. And oh, what a sense of relief and gratitude to God we felt. I heard voices raised in triumph to God. I was happy perfectly happy. That's from the book Life Sketches. And it only describes the hope that the prophet had. And I don't know about you, but it's my hope today. And I'm asking the Lord to give me the discipline to do more time to read and study, first of all, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, to make it the guide for my life. And I'm going to hold on to the cord. I don't care what anybody says or does. I'm going to hold on. How about you? Is that your determination? Do you plan to swing over? Are you committed? Do you put everything in on the process of surrender to Jesus and holding that cord? If so, may I see you stand now as we pray in response to the word and in a dedicated display to God of our intentions. Father in heaven, 
Thank you for the prophet. Thank you for the greater light of your word and the lesser light of the spirit of prophecy. And may the lessons of this hour fortify us, sanctify us, forgive us of our sins, forgive us of being negligent in the study and in following the word. And as we launch this journey, may we not only become better acquainted, but may we become fairly committed. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we never leave here without opening the doors of the church.